This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Laura Ha Reisman. Today, we have Jeanette Kim speaking about her book, Postcolonial Grief, The Afterlives of the Pacific Wars in the Americas, published in 2019 by Duke University Press. Dr. Kim is Assistant Professor in Communication Studies at California State University, Northridge. Jinna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Laura. It's such a pleasure to be here. Um, so I'd like to begin by asking you a little bit about yourself um, and how you came, became interested in this topic. Thank you. Well, you know, I am a child of immigrants. I moved to the United States when I was eight years old from Seoul, South Korea. And my desire to learn more about the place I left has really um you know, it has really driven me ever since I started college. But, you know, but primarily, um, I was really interested in writing this book, I think a long time ago, I was an undergraduate student at Columbia University in the 1990s, when um, we had a strike for Asian American studies. And one of the one of the things that happened out of that experience was that we hired David Eng, who is a literary scholar and works on the idea of racial melancholia, um, and taught me about topics like post-memory um, and the ways in which the traumas of the past continue to impact um, the second generation, even if you haven't lived through it. And, you know, even though back then, because I hadn't really been educated in Asian American studies, that was something that I got the chance to do in graduate school, um, you know, a lot of what he... Um, you know, talked a lot of what he taught us just resonated with me on an almost... Um, affective level. You know, I didn't really have the intellectual language to explain it, but the idea that somehow um, immigrant groups, particularly Asian immigrant groups, um, carry with them the traumas of the past that transcends the U.S. space and also um, your generation, it um, it stayed with me. And it's, uh, it's uh, you know, in all of my book now and, and the works I'm thinking about for the future. Um, you know, in addition to that, um, you know, that formative, you know, moment, um, you know, of, of being a part of the start of something like Asian American studies, when I was a college student, um, there was, in a period of two years, there were um, six Asian American, Korean American students in particular, who committed suicide or were killed um, at Columbia University. And there was no language um, for any of us who are students or faculty or administration to talk about the particular nature of that trauma. Um, 
And so, you know, this is, this is all kind of, you know, um, you know, circular, but, you know, I, I felt, I feel like the, the work that I'm, that this book, Postcolonial Grief, which, you know, looks at how Korean and Japanese diasporas in the United States negotiates the, the will to stay silent about the, the histories of U.S. militarism in the Pacific arena. It, it feels like it was a project that started a long time ago um, and, and um, made sense for me, you know, through many different, um, through, through a lot of, of, through many layers of experiences and knowledge that, um, that I started with in college. And then um, because of David Eng's um, guidance, I um, ended up getting a PhD in cultural studies at UC San Diego with um, Lisa Lowe. Um, I worked primarily with Dr. Lisa Lowe and Lisa Yonayama. And I think that they really helped me um, bridge my interest in what's happening in the U.S. and what's happening across the Trans-Pacific and to really um, reconfigure both of those spaces. So, so yeah, I'm a child of immigrants who ended up writing a book and it's pretty amazing. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's so important to kind of speak to your own experience when you're, you know, um, well, you know, basically going through grad school and, you know, studying something um, and, 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 and it reflects a part of your, your history as well. Um, so, so I definitely got that sense from reading your book as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I was, um, I think uh, the one thing that, um, yeah, I guess I'd like to say, like, I, I really liked actually the title of your book. Um, and I think it really speaks to a particular growing subset of, of academic writings on the Trans-Pacific um, and war redress, uh, post-colonial and settler colonial relations um, that continue to impact our everyday lives. And um, you've already mentioned Lisa Yonayama's. Um, and yeah, when I was reading your book, I was actually thinking about her work, uh, Hiroshima Traces, uh, as well as the more recent book that she had written on cold, uh, called Cold War Ruins. Um, and then you also, you know, mentioned how, how deeply impacted you were by David Eng's book or Eng's work. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can speak a bit about how, where, how you situate your work within, um, all these disparate, disparate fields, um, that, that really intersects. So Asian American studies, Asian diasporic studies, um, and or Asian trans-Pacific studies and, and probably other studies I'm not really, um, mentioning here. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, it was, it's sort of immeasurable to me how much my growth in what I thought Asian American studies and what it's possible to do, um, you know, how much I grew having moved from New York. You know, I got my undergraduate degree in English at Columbia um, and then moving to UC San Diego, moving to California, where Asian American studies was not new. It was historic. Um, and in fact, it was um, by the time I got there in 2000, it had really surpassed a lot of what I knew to be Asian American studies. I thought about Asian American studies as reading Asian American literary studies as reading books about people born in the United States or, you know, people who are, you know, recent immigrants, people sort of like me, but, you know, um, with a different kind of a deeper connection to, um, you know, to, to the land by being born here. And one of the things that um, I realized when I went to graduate school in 2000 was that um, Asian American studies and, um, uh, and Asian, well, 
you know, it, that Asian American studies had already surpassed the, um, the discrete boundaries of the nation and was really asking questions about how to build these um, previously verboten relationship to and across the Trans-Pacific. Um, and I think Lisa Lowe's work was really seminal in doing that, in recognizing the ways in which um, Asian American and Asian immigrant people are punished for the kind of um, you know, kind of love and connection that they maintain in the diaspora and the need to deny that history and the ways that it infiltrates Asian American literature. Um, and so, I, you know, I think by the time I started my graduate degree in 2000, I was already influenced by this shift or this turn um, toward the Trans-Pacific, toward recuperating both recuperating these histories of connections um, that had been silenced and, you know, um, kind of intellectual connections that were never really allowed to be established. And so one of the things that I talk about in uh, my book in the third chapter, um, which looks at um, the genre of film noir and the ways that it is um, indebted to um, not just the history of U.S. um, atomic bombing in um, in, in Japan, but also the kind of artistic legacies, you know, Japanese um, cinema and film, you know, and so forth. You know, I think that that um, it, it just became quite, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, easy for me to be able to articulate that. And, you know, when I first started this book, I didn't know that this was the book that I was going to write. I moved to California. And one of the things that um, you know, really struck me both in the culture and the political formation is how much Asian American and Latino and Chicano communities um, had in common in terms of um, immigration histories, the kinds of themes um, that are significant to, you know, both cultural and political formations. And so I first started this book as a kind of comparison between how Asian Americans and Latinos um, negotiated, um, you know, Los Angeles. And that took me on this really wonderful three or four years where I went to Latin America and did a lot of research, particularly on the Korean diaspora in Peru, Argentina, and Brazil, some of which is still reflected in the book, in the fourth chapter, um, you know, specifically. But, um, but I, you know, I, it, it, you know, when I first started my, um, when I first entered Asian American studies, it was to recognize its national limits and also to think about its um, identitarian limits that it, um, that it, that it as a field cannot just uh, attend to Asian racialized bodies, but, um, you know, must see itself in relation to other racial forms. So that's a sort of like the the kind of intellectual history of um, how this book uh, began to develop. But you know, a few other things happened while I was writing my dissertation and um, and working on my book. You know, one of the most formative was um, the Virginia Tech shooting. And I don't really talk about that that much in the, you know, it's mentioned, I think, very briefly in the footnotes. I write a lot in the footnotes for some reason. But, um, you know, when the, the shooting happened uh, with Cho Sang-hui in, um, at Virginia Tech, and then a le- year later, you know, at Oikos, when um, another Korean international, uh, um, uh, Cho Sang-hui was a Korean-American, at Oikos when a Korean international student um, also uh, was a part of a, a mass shootout, you know, it revived for me this, um, you know, this, I, I talked about it as kind of a feeling, you know, this sense that I knew that there are these legacies and traumas of that the Korean diaspora lives with that's specifically related to, um, you know, by grad school, I could give it a language and a name that is specifically tied to, you know, U.S. military um, 
uh, you know, growth in Korea and the the militarization of you know Korean um, culture in general, you know, um, those events I think um, kind of redirected me from uh, thinking about my thinking about Asian American or Korean Americans in comparison um, with um, other ethnic groups and to be thinking to be honing more in on the um, the legacies of military expansion and um, and the ways that that impacts. Um, you know, different, um, different uh, racialized and different immigrant communities. Um, and so that's, that's sort of how um, the different pieces of the book come together. My interest in what's happening in Latin America, uh, my interest in thinking about not just the Trans-Pacific, but also the Pacific Rim, it, um, it all kind of, you know, comes together through this larger intellectual journey I end up um, participating in grad school. Great. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I I actually that that's that's so that's so helpful to get that explanation because um, I was so curious about um, that chapter you're talking about in terms of um, you know you talk about Alberto Fujimori, um, which we'll get into a little bit later. But yeah, um, so that makes a lot of sense, um, and this is very helpful to get a sense of like your trajectory in terms of you know you, you started off with. Um, you know, thinking about uh, maybe a comparison, and then we see that uh, we see how that kind of works out in in the book itself. Um, and I, I I very much agree with you in terms of you know it's just it's so difficult to um, you know when we're thinking about these disciplines uh, we kind of think of them uh, still in these sort of vacuums. But you know, as your book very much shows, it's you know there's so much sort of intersectionality that's happening. Um, with with all of these disciplines, and you can't really talk about one community without talking about another. Um, so, uh, and I, I think that you know you reflect that in your work. Um, so, yeah. Um, so then, the next question I have for you. <clears throat> Um, is the concept of melancholia, um, which I think is a a key trope throughout your work. Um, And I wonder if you can explain um, how this term functions in your book and what kind of work it's doing for your broader argument. Um, And the other part of that question uh, would be, how does melancholia differ from mourning? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a few different... um, understandings of melancholia that are um, ultimately at play in the book, you know, first and foremost, you know, my understanding of the term um, melancholia is, um, uh, you know, uh, is famously understood as um, mourning that refuses to end. And so it's a, you know, as um, theorized by Freud and other psychoanalysts um, who are, you know, very important in my work, um, Mourning needs to come to a natural end. You know, you replace an object of loss. You know, um, through the um, through the adoption of of a, of a new object, and so the loss ends. Um, and and the, the mourning period is, um, the mourning mourning as a period um, can last for a quite a long time. But one, but but the thing that signals that the morning is lost is um, that the morning is over is that um, that the subject has replaced this loss with a new object. Um, melancholia is the refusal to replace that loss or to find a um, a commensurate object to fill that in. Um, and so um, it's really significant for somebody like Freud that um, while morning was um, the end of morning, you know, signaled 
um, the ability of the patient to enter back into proper society by the end of World War One. And, you know, for somebody like Fanon and for Freud and for Butler, um, who are all drawing from a very similar tradition, the the grand wars and the kind of traumas that they in um, that they enacted not only on the individual but on the broader society made a kind of replacement or um, a replacement of that loss with something else impossible. Melancholia became a much more um, not necessarily a socially um, acceptable, but it became but it was seen as something that um, was rational um, and could exist in. Um, you know, could exist, um, you know, uh, simultaneous with a kind of a, you know, a kind of a civilized society. I mean, it was not, um, it was not seen as something that was outside of time or belonging to an uncivilized space. And, you know, um, and, and I say that this kind of dual recognition of both mourning and melancholia as being a modern condition existed, but it's still quite stigmatized. Um, and it's really not until, um, the 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 1960s with um you know a Franz Fanon and his work particularly in Wretched of the Earth where you really begin to see the um the the um the unending nature of mourning particularly as it's related to um, subaltern groups or to insurgent um, populations becomes a much more um a popular and important kind of a theoretical apparatus. Um, the idea of racial melancholia, um, which is uh, coined by uh, David Eng, becomes really important for him um, in his first book, um, um, as he's uh, trying to, you know, uh, you know, give a, give a language for understanding the ways in which um, Asian immigrants are, on the one hand, expected to be able to um, assimilate and want to become a part of the national whole, but at the same time are unable to do so. Um, and that inability to do so, you know, as he argues, is, you know, due to white supremacy and the, the legacies of exclusion, which are really central for maintaining the, um, the, the, the U.S. Um, racial state and the kind of racial hierarchy. And so he terms that um, racial melancholia to, um, to I think, uh, signal the on the one hand the continual operation of white supremacy, which denies certain bodies inclusion into the nation state, and then blames them for their failures to be able to assimilate, and also on the other hand to highlight this legacy of a militarism um, and the state violence that uh, that produces uh, subjects at constant states of melancholia, um, um, but but who due to their melancholic nature. Um, might sometimes be um, disavowed by the state itself. Um, and so that's the kind of legacy in um, the Asian American and the Asian diaspora context. You know, um, I think recently, particularly because of the um, the rise of, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, but particularly the visibility of, the, the, the visibility of, you know, Black bodies in pain, you know, you see that, um, Actually, I mean, you know, I'm narrating this kind of wrong, but, you know, um, there's also been a commitment um, uh, uh, theorizing and I'm um, thinking through of racial melancholia in African-American and Afri African diasporic, um, you know, um, studies. And so I think that whereas the idea of melancholia has been applied to the U.S. racial context, it hasn't really been applied trans-Pacifically to really think about the kind of 
um, oceanic losses, you know, in the ways that the Trans-Pacific Studies um, has, um, has, you know, thought about this topic a little bit, you know, longer and deeper. Paul Gilroy, um, Christina Sharp's recent work in The Wake, um, the kind of rumination over um, Emmett Till's um, body and his mother's, um, you know, decision to have the casket remain open, and so, you know, um, it, so one of the things that you know I, um, so one of the things that's really significant about the idea of racial melancholia is that it is deep and long in many um, intellectual traditions, but it's really not until. Um, you know, David Eng's work, and again, the kind of shift in Asian American studies from thinking just about the nation state, but to thinking trans-specifically, where I think this um, idea becomes more important um, and has this kind of political weight and um, allows us to think about questions like afterlives and ruins and um, ongoing nature of, um, of, 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 of um, you know, militarism and colonialism. Great. Yeah. Um... I um yeah I I definitely felt like um you know this concept of melancholia um is is so integral to the the whole of your book um and I could see how you know you're relating this to um uh within the transpacific context um and and l- yes like you're saying um I think um the way that uh Ang has uh previously worked on it is is within um, within the U.S. tradition, so um, it's quite interesting to see how that then um, is applied in in a more broader context. Um, and so, um, along this vein, um, so each of your chapters are a close analysis of uh, a work of literature and then one film. Um, and I wanted to ask, like, why these objects of study? Um, in other words, what does literature and film do to explain how post-colonial grief functions within communities of color in the U.S. and those abroad that were affected by Japanese colonialism and um, U.S. militarism? Yeah, of course, thank you. You know, one of the things that I think ties all of these works together is that not only do they define a a past of violence and a present inability to move through, um, and so that's melancholia, right? That like there's this loss that this um, there's this loss that's expressed and a an, an inability or an unwillingness, you know, to be able to move through that loss to to sit with it. I think in addition to that, all the works that I look at also um, describe a fear of a future um, where violence will return. And, and so that's one of the, um, you know, it's uh, this, you know, this idea of dread forwarding, you know, that um, one of the things that um, an unaddressed trauma can do can also make you fearful that this future of violence uh, will return. Um, is I think the other thematic thing that um, ties all of my work to ties all of the texts that I, um, that I look at together. But I start with um, the wretched of the earth and a fire in Fontana to um, to develop this concept of um, you know racial melancholia um, in the um, in the specific um, inquiry uh, to understand the ways in which both Japanese and Korean diasporas in the U.S. are um, forced into silence um, and how certain histories become verboten and how that verboten nature um, can uh, lead to a generalized state of melancholia. Um, in the second chapter, I look at um, the Los Angeles riots and the notion of the interregnum through Saigu and um, the tattooed soldier. And both of these texts are iconic texts. All of them are. A Fire in Fontana, 
um, Tsai Igu, um, for, uh, Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth, as well as um, Hector Tobar's um, The Tattooed Soldier. And then one of the things that I really wanted to do was to draw attention to how all of these texts are um, interwoven, how, how in all of these texts, this um, refusal to move on um, impacts both the narrative and also um, you know, the, the political impetus behind the works that have not yet been um, discussed. And so I, you know, I wanted to, I wanted an opportunity to think about texts that are central to our discipline um, and to apply a, a new way of thinking through them. Uh, in chapter three, um, Trans-Pacific Noir, um, a, a Trans-Pacific Noir, in some ways that was my favorite chapter to write because I love film noir and I've always loved it even before I started to um, write this book. And one of the things that um, that I, I, I discuss in that chapter is this notion of the hidden Korean figure, uh, which is found in, um, which is often found. It's a, it, the, the hidden Korean figure is often the kind of surprise um, in uh, many Japanese and Korean popular culture and um, novels. Um, um, and so I was surprised to find such a hidden Korean figure in, um, in, in American film noir. Um, and, um, and so that, uh, you know, and, and so I think that um, in, in two, uh, in Summer of the Big Bachi by, um, by Naomi Hirahara, which really first, um, you know, inspired, um, inspired, the, inspired that chapter. And then um, again, in, um, um, uh, you know, in in the in the numerous references to um, Chinamen and um, you know and others that you see in um, you know in um, in uh, noir in general, but in the Crimson Kimono in particular. And so I wanted to think about how these you know hidden Korean figures um, you know linger and you know make a genre like noir, which is already melancholy, even more melancholic. And then I end with Teresa Raleigh and um, uh, uh, Jose Watanabe's um, Antigona for several reasons. I wanted to um, elaborate on how our current framing of the Trans-Pacific, which is both both an attempt to Asian American studies and rendering of the Trans-Pacific, which is both an attempt to recognize that we fly over the ocean, but I think we always do so anyways that you know um in in almost all of the the recent theorizing that i can think of that uses a trans-pacific you know the ocean is still flown over unless you have somebody like keith camacho and um sister shigematsu's um you know military currents which where the the the, um, ideas are centered on the islands it's uh, entered centered on the islands or the indigenous populations themselves i mean so i um on the one hand, I wanted to uh, draw attention to that phenomena, and also how the um, and how also to connect the the framing of the Pacific Rim, which um, you know connects um, across the Trans-Pacific and across the Americas and the Asias, um, you know, in a, in a different way to um, um, as as a different iteration of um, how we can think about the the living on of 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 loss, and so so yeah, so those are the those are the reasons that I brought those particular. Great. Yeah. Together. Thank you so much. Um, I, I'm about to now get into all of these specific chapters actually. So that was a nice, uh, that was a nice, uh, overview of, of all of them. Um, so in terms of, uh, so the first chapter, um, you talk about, um, this, this is the Franz Fanon and, um, Hisae Yamamoto's, uh, 
short story, Fire in Fontana. Um, and um, you talk about melancholy violence, um, which you draw from Frantz Fanon. Um, and um, I wonder if you can explain this term a little bit more in relation to the story uh, uh, by uh, Yamamoto uh, that um, in which a Japanese-American journalist uh, is feeling guilty over her inaction when a Black family perishes in a fire um, that... Um, that is due to suspected racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And so, uh, uh, Fanon is developing this, this idea of um, melancholy, uh, melancholy violence throughout all of his work, but it really comes to fruition in Wretched of the Earth. And this is because of his work as a psychiatrist at Blida Jeanville in, um, in Algeria, where he was working with both the, um, the Algerian insurgents and the, of the French um, occupying um, uh, colonialists. And one of the things that really changes in his work while he's there is that he begins to recognize, and this goes back to my idea of dread forwarding, begins to recognize that, um, that for all of the, um, the people that he treats, there is a reactionary psychosis, which is not something that's confined to the past. It won't be healed by, um, by um, addressing uh, a past trauma, but it has to anticipate that this, uh, that this past trauma is continually going to um, impact the person's perception of the future. And so he has a really famous um, diagnosis that he does with the, um, the daughter of one of the French generals. And she um, is not only haunted by the sounds of torture that she hears coming from her home, but then she also um, dreams it and imagines it as something that's going to be a part of her life forever. Um, and, that, and, that, and that she imagines that it's, you know, it's something that comes to her from the future. And, um, and this would shift his idea about a melancholia um, and the nature of violence related to melancholia, that melancholia is a state of being that can only be removed for colonized people through revolution. And revolution will always require a certain amount of violence. And so, um, you know, this is, you know, it's, it's with this work and this kind of thinking where um, I think Fanon, uh, you know, becomes quite... Um, you know, the position of the, the way that Fanon uh, theorizes violence is often quite controversial. People like to think about Fanon and, you know, take insight from um, his work as more metaphorical um, and um, want to dismiss the idea that he, you know, in some ways advocated for violence. And so I think that thinking about melancholia in Fanon always leads to the conclusion that certain kind of violence is necessary in order to get rid of this generalized state of melancholia. Um, and so I, so I was, I was really fascinated by, um, by, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, his work is central to the book as a whole, but I was really fascinated when I was reading A Fire in Fontana, which I had read, you know, many times as a kind of, um, a cat, Hisai Yamamoto's work and, and the article, her article in some ways is, um, you know, really canonical, but I was really struck by how in this story, one of the things that, um, that um that impacts her is not just this fear um you know just this um regret that um that she had not said something about this family who had died she knows that they were likely murdered and that um and that they had come to her and 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 that the father had come to her to ask her 
for help. Um, she's not just traumatized by the fact that she was silent then, but she's also, you know, quite afraid in the story that this, uh, that this past um, failure will continue to be her future, that she will always act in a way that, um, that, um, that, that fails, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, anti-black racism. And so um, I, you know, I, so in thinking about that kind of uh, melancholy violence and this fear that um, that Japanese American uh, refusal to um, act, you know, as an ally for African Americans might dog um, the um, the Japanese American or the Asian American, you know, future um, political formation that it might be um, that it that it might be um, you know staved off. Um, it's what made me want to, you know, think about the two works together. And, you know, for me, um, particularly when, uh, because of when Yamamoto was writing, because she was writing at a time as a Japanese American community was trying to grapple with this legacy of internment um, and questions about reparation and memorialization, all of which are really central to the processes of mourning and melancholia and and public melancholia um, uh, that, um, that it seemed to make sense to me. Um, and, you know, I, I recognized the work that she was doing as a kind of, um, as a kind of um, melancholy violence making um, in a 1980s time period where that was not a, a period where um, revolutionary activity was not normal, you know, not in the same way that, you know, when Franz Fanon was writing in the 60s and 70s, when arguments about violence due to melancholia, you know, seemed to make immediate sense um, as a part of a kind of a larger revolutionary um, thinking. When Yamamoto's writing in the 1980s, the community that she's described, that she's working with is really kind of thinking about ways of closure and, you know, um, and acceptance and, and moving on. And she wanted to foreclose that. And that was uh, foreclose that um, closure. Um, that that's terrible. Uh, she wanted to, you know, shut down the idea of closure. She wanted to keep the future open, and that was a kind of melancholic um, political vi- political violence. And uh, great, I wanted yeah. to draw um, attention to that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. That's a really interesting connection, actually. Um, I, yeah, I, I, um, in terms of thinking about, you know, that sort of relationship to, you know, revolution and closure um, and how, you know, you're bringing one time period um, with another um, and, and putting them in conversation like that. Um, And yeah, it makes, it makes total sense to me. Um, uh, I, I think, um, yeah. So then in thinking about, um, you know, U.S. militarism um, in the Pacific, um, Los Angeles wouldn't be the first place people may really think of. Um, but you actually use the L.A. riots of 1992 uh, to rethink how U.S. militarism resonates in the lives of African-Americans, but also more particularly in Korean and Guatemalan immigrants. Um, and along this vein, you um, what 
is racial cognitive remapping? And how does the notion of interregnum, um, which you define as, quote, a cessation or break in normal political power and social order, um, complement this notion? Of course, thank you. Um, and I, um, you know, I, I just wanted to um, add to you know something I forgot to um, to say in the pre- about the previous chapter that um, one of the things that I think that uh, somebody like Yamamoto refusing to concede that the discussion about reparations is over um, in the 1980s. I think one of the things that that does is that it anticipates the Trans-Pacific Redress Movement um, in the 1990s. Um, and figures like Mike Honda, who were central to, you know, who were a part of the um, the people that, um, you know, that um, the Yamamoto is trying to influence and, you know, and have conversations with, um, you know, about um, the need to, um, to do you need to have a more radical reconceptualization of you know reparations will become central in discussions over um, the comfort women and the role that the U.S. and Japan should play in that. And so I I think that um, you know I I I think that that moment of you know of Yamamoto's writing is just so significant because it opens up the community for um, you know the, the sort of future movements that I write about later. But um, in terms of the so you know the first thing that you said is that people don't normally think about Los Angeles as a center of U.S. military empire, and I think that that's a part of the problem. You know because um, I think that. You know, often it, perhaps it might be Hawaii or uh, maybe Okinawa or you know places of U.S. military bases that might uh, maybe perhaps more immediately signal, um, you know, uh, you know U.S. militarism in the Pacific. But of course, you know, we make um, a great deal of you know weapons and manufacturing in Los Angeles, you know, which um, is central to the U.S military apparatus. And, you know, one of the things that I write about in both Sai Gu and The Tattooed Soldier is that um, um, Hollywood and U.S. Um, cinema acts as a de facto um, soft, you know, um, military, um, um, you know, uh, military and colonial, um, you know, tool for um, in both, um, you know, Central America and in the U.S. And we know that that's sometimes quite directed that, you know, um, that the U.S. military and Hollywood often worked together in order to produce the kind of narratives that would, um, you know, um, uh, entice or ease, you know, the idea of being colonized by the U.S. And so I, you know, I think that one of the things that um, I wanted to be able to do in my book is to um, to really centralize um to, uh, to really centralize Los Angeles as a, both an ideological but also a military apparatus, um, you know, um, you know, a center of U.S.'s military empire, and also as a place that really, um, you know, go, as a place that really facilitates and you know trains, um, you know, these uh, different um, immigrant groups that, that might become the soldiers for the U.S. But um, but yeah, you know, I never really thought that I would write a book. I would write a book about, um, you know, racial melancholia and then focus on um, the L.A. riots through the Tattooed Soldier and Sai Gu. But the the more I read the text, the more I was compelled to do so. Um, and in some ways, it's a kind of like comparison like I did with um, um, Franz Fanon and... Uh, Hisai Yamamoto in the sense that both Sai Gu and um, the Tattooed Soldier in different ways um, 
center the role that the past of military violence um, in Guatemala and then in Korea um, impact the ways that they live through and interpret um, the Los Angeles riots. And, you know, that was really fascinating for me, you know, um, and it again goes back to my interest in understanding how it is that the immigrant and the diasporic populations um, hold on to memories um, that are supposed to be verboten, particularly military memories, particularly memories that um, indict the U.S. Um, um, and particularly about um, you know, war violence that it has yet to be held accountable for, um, how they hold these histories. And um, the L.A. riots, for a variety of reasons, was one of those moments in the Tattoo Soldier and Saigu um, that where their particular histories of military, um, of being colonized, um, the the specific uh, violence of neoliberal violence of um, this hierarchy, the ways in which um, different racialized bodies are hierarchized and, you know, placed into playing different roles um, in a neoliberal economy in um, Los Angeles and the ways that in which that directs the, um, uh, you know, anti-black or anti, you know, Latino racism, for example, in, um, you know, immigrant communities and vice versa. Um, you know, all of those events come together um, in both of these texts. And it's specifically because the state is absent. It's the interregnum is when the state is absent. And, you know, um, it, it's a, it has a, you know, it's, it's one of those old, you know, Roman laws where, you know, basically um, it, it delineates what is supposed to happen when the king dies because or the king or the, the sovereign dies because um, supposedly the sovereign gains their power only from, um, you know, from God. And so when they die, how are you supposed to, um, how are you supposed to, you know, find a, uh, find a new sovereign? And so the interregnum is this uh, dangerous period. If there's no clear um, genealogy or lineage um, that's, um, you know, that's, um, that's laid out. And so, you know, uh, it's a dangerous period. There's, it's a period in which the state is absent. Um, uh, It means that, Either the population or the senators or somebody else, somebody illegitimate can, you know, claim power. Um, and so um, the in, although um, none of the actors, you know, neither the Central American or the Korean Americans or African Americans were able to necessarily become the new sovereign or fill in the interregnum through their own um, uh, become the new leader, per se, um, this period, not only this period of sort of lawlessness and sort of state absence, not only enabled um, the resurgence of these memories, but, you know, um, after the L.A. riots, certain things certainly changed in Los Angeles where. Um, actually, that's not very true. I mean, certain things changed for a, a very short period of time where um, particularly Korean-American and African-American communities built some. Um, alliances and links between them, but there was nothing sustained on the state level um, beyond the first two years that um, that um, that really uh, you know encouraged any kind of healing. And so, so yeah, so so I draw on the term interregnum to think about um, the absence of state power, um, how state power has always been absent, particularly in um, you know um, in um, predominantly black communities um, in Los Angeles and how 
the nature of filling in for that loss of, of state power is still uneven. And in, in many ways, it is a state of absence when it comes to um, dealing with any kind of the social, political, um, economic, or the kind of cultural needs of, you know, aggrieved groups in, um, in Los Angeles. Um, so, yeah, so those are the, those are the reasons that I, that I focus on the um, idea of the interregnum as a way to, um, to understand what was happening in these texts and how these com- and how and why the Los Angeles riots in particular became this moment, not just for violence and destruction and breaks between communities, but also a kind of, um, you know, new community building between ethnic groups and also between um, these communities and um, their diasporic communities itself. And that's a part of what guides the notion of racial cognitive mapping. I draw from the, t- uh, the idea of cognitive mapping from Frederick Jameson, um, who is um, himself looking at um, a scholar whose name just escapes me for a moment. But, um, but, you know, they're both thinking about Baltimore and what happens to a city as it becomes um, uh, deindustrialized, as it becomes, as a, as a center of economy and production is no longer situated in a particular city, but that it becomes dispersed. Um, one of the things that, uh, for Jameson, that's alarming about, um, you know, uh, cognitive mapping, the, which requires which then breaks down and forces a new cognitive mapping. There's no longer the, um, you know, uh, there's no longer the, um, you know, uh, the traditional, um, you know, factory that might have signaled for you that this is the prime economy of Baltimore that no longer exists. You know, um, when that doesn't happen anymore, you now need to create new kind of um, cognitive maps or cognitive anchors to, um, to recenter yourself. And, um, for Jameson, he felt a certain amount of nostalgia and kind of sadness about the loss of these national cognitive um, um, anchors and mapping. But what I saw in Tattooed Soldier and Saigu is not so much of a loss or a sadness about the um, about the erosion of the the, na- the, the national cognitive um, anchor, um, but a need to recognize that those um, that the that the national boundaries of cognitive anchors have always been racialized, um, and that um, immigrants uh, bring, you know, cognitive mapping that is global and also connects the diaspora, you know, to disparate sites. And it's again not just um, bound to Los Angeles. And so, um, one of the things that I talk about in terms of a racial cognitive remapping in both of the texts is um, the ways that um, both the protagonist in The Tattooed Soldier and also in, this, in Saigu talk about how they felt like they knew the United States even before they got here because they had seen it unfold in movies. Or, um, you know, remittance centers, um, place, you know, um, Guatemalan, refuge, uh, Guatemalan um, immigrants might send um, home, you know, money or, you know, other kinds of needs through remittances, remittance centers that, again, um, re... Uh, that displace what you might think about traditional geographical markers um, and forces a kind of a, a racial cognitive oh, Very remapping. interesting. Um, yeah. Um, so, uh, okay, yeah, I'm just digesting everything you're saying. Um, so um, 
when you also, and, and then um, sort of moving on to chapter three, uh, um, you make a very interesting argument um, for what you call trans-Pacific noir. And that's interesting that you say that this is, um, you know, you're the funnest sort of, or you really enjoyed writing chapter three as well. Um, it's funny how like you can kind of sense it as a reader, um, but uh, you, 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 um, you also note, and I quote, um, what I identify in Trans-Pacific Noir is a genre full of broken and degraded bodies, which makes visible the necropolitic um, that structures U.S. military dominance in the Pacific arena during and after world, the World War II era. Um, and you use the film The Crimson Kimono and Naomi Hirahara's novel Summer of the Big Baki, uh, Bachi, um, as your primary object of analysis. And, um, you speak more to this concept of the necropolitic as well as, um, what you've already mentioned a few times of, uh, this concept of dread forwarding, um, which I believe you, um, uh, pulled from Grace Cho's work, um, and in which a new trauma can trigger an older one, uh, inducing both a flashback, but also a flash forward in these works. Um, so yeah, I wonder if you can kind of speak a little bit more to that, um, because it seems to me, um, you know, this concept is, is quite also very important in addition to melancholia, you know, they all kind of work in concert with each other, obviously. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I, I've i always loved the genre of noir. And I think that one of the things that um, I really wanted to do in this chapter is to um, shift our focus. Um, traditionally, noir scholarship um, has, you know, really developed this idea that um, film noir is developed in the U.S. in conversation with, what, with, with what's happening in Europe. And so particularly, um, you know, German and French, um, you know, um, impressionism and um, the cinema culture that's developing out of the hardships of World War II, you can definitely see a lot of the um, intersections between them. And, um, you know, people like, um, you know, Joseph von um, Sternberg in the Shanghai Express, um, you know, is often um, mentioned as a kind of a precursor to, um, you know, a popular um, American a film noir, um, a, a film noir, uh, you know, directors. But, you know, it was very clear to me as I was watching, you know, um, these movies and reading these novels that much more so than oriented toward Europe, and might have been that, you know, stylistically, and also perhaps because many of the directors and writers had fled Europe, that um, stylistically that there might be something to be said about the connections between the two. But the subject matter for noir is all trans-Pacific. It's all about what's happening in, um, in a cross- um, um, across the Pacific. And so, you know, I, um, I talk about, um, you know, uh, you know, James Cain's, um, double indemnity and, um, and, um, you know, uh, the ways in which, um, the, the novel itself is focused on, um, you know, the Filipino, um, you know, uh, houseboy, you know, who takes care of him, you know, which is um, changed by the time it makes it to the movie. Um, and so, you know, so one of the things that I really wanted to do was to think about how, um, how our orientation for film noir scholarship is just wrong, you know, to think about it in relationship to what's happening in Europe, just, you know, immensely, um, 
you know, misses the mark on the um, on the influence that um, what's happening across the Trans-Pacific um, has on American um in one of the most formative um, American genres of the time. And um, it seemed to make a lot of sense to me that film noir would be the genre in which we are dealing with the verboten nature of U.S.'s military um, occupation and expansion in the Pacific. And noir is full of broken, degraded um, bodies. It, it's a play on bodies. Um, bodies in noir... Um, I, you know, are often, you know, stylized through, you know, the particular ways that they're shot, um, you know, the, the kind of black and whites that might, you know, obscure a face um, and so that you just see a part um, to, um, you know, to finding out that the person who is, you know, truly the most evil, you know, has some sort of a, a physical defect or, or um, you know, is, is sort of broken in one form or another. So it may, it, so on the one hand, so on many ways, it makes sense to me that, um that um, noir's history and relationship and inspiration across the Trans-Pacific is hidden um, because I think that is, um, it, that makes the case for me that that is a nature of our, um, of U.S. A relationship across the Trans-Pacific um, and that it was really important for me to get the opportunity to, you know, think about um, the, the kind of Trans-Pacific history that that's here. Um, and then I, I don't remember the um, other part of the question, but um, but thinking about the and, and so that's what um, that's what leads me to move from crimson crimson kimono where there's a you know a hidden Korean um, um, that the that the that the Japanese American protagonist you know in some ways just you know, can't speak of, you know, um, one, because um, he's not really supposed to be able to speak Japanese. Um, that uh, means that he failed um, in being properly um, Americanized as a result of World War II, and also because of, of the, um, the ongoing Korean War that was happening, you know, um, that the that, um, the Crimson Kimono is, uh, is thematizing. So, um, so Crimson Kimono gives me one opportunity to think about this surprising and unexpected hidden Korean. And then in Naomi Harahara, Summer of the Big Bachi, uh, and Bachi is sort of loosely translated as what goes around comes around. Um, and um, I, I do a little bit of connecting that to the Korean um, dreadwork Han, but I think that they're a little bit different. I think that the temporality is different. Um, and, you know, and in thinking about how um, Hirahara uh, makes explicit, you know, this um, subcurrent, this undercurrent, you know, this thing, this um, thing that sustains American um, genre of noir itself. Um, and so I, so I, I was just really fascinated in um, following that throughout history and seeing the ways in which um, these, you know, two very different um, authors, auteurs, you know, um, treated that topic. Great. Yeah. Um, so the second part of that question was about dread forwarding and how that related to chapter three specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Dread forwarding is a concept that um, Grace Cho, um, uh, you know, gets and she is um, she like many um, Korean, many diasporic scholars interested in questions of gender and war in Korea um, are, you know, thinking about um, particularly the scholarship that's coming out of the Holocaust. And so Abraham, um, Abraham Totok, 
uh, Marianne Hirsch, um, you know, um, these figures who are theorizing post-memory, you know, um, and the, the ways in which the violence of the past continues to live on is really important to Grace Cho's work. And uh, one of the things that, um, that she is, um, you know, arguing is that in um, many of the testimonies that of the, um, the Korean children or um, the survivors of the Korean War, that they similarly have this orientation to the future that is dreadful um, because the traumas of the past are verboten or not allowed to be spoken of. Um, they uh, come back. Um, and it's sort of like, um, and they come back in your imagine, imagination as something that um, will repeat again in the future. Again, um, much like Fanon's notion of the reactionary psychosis, you know, which is not just, um, which is not just lay in the past, but is also something um, that influences um, your orientation to the future and thus shapes what is possible or impossible about um, what is possible or impossible for you to imagine as a um, as a future politic, um, and so yeah, dread forwarding. It's um, it's a. I would not say that it's something that you find in all noirs, but it is certain that it is certainly something that you find in um, some of the big bocce, and I would say in Naomi Hirahara's work in particular. And I think that is because she is actively working on these multiple legacies. She's thinking about her main um, protagonist is a Kibei. Kibes are Japanese Americans who during the World War II era were sent to Japan. And this was a common occurrence before World War II. This was a way that Japanese immigrants ensured that their children were able to learn the language or stay in contact with their culture. Um, her main protagonist is a Kibei who um, went to Japan uh, right before World War II, um, right before the U.S. got involved in World War II and lived through the bombing in Hiroshima. And so after having survived, he's also a Hibakusha, um, a Hirosh, uh, an atomic bomb survivor. And so as a Kibei and as a Hibakusha, he comes back to the United States, but no longer feels like a citizen. He's um, no longer feels like he has a sense of home. He's multiply displaced. Um, and in that displacement, he finds a certain kind of kinship um, with other broken and displaced people like him, you know, many of whom are also Japanese or Japanese American Kibes, um, people who are displaced as a result of of um, internment, but also um, other immigrants, um, immigrant populations, people who are refugees who he identifies with because of his work as a gardener. By the time that the novel is set in the two thousands, you know, gardening in LA is no longer something that's um, you know primarily Japanese American, but it's also uh, something that's being done by. On Latinos and Chicanos. And so I think that in um, Hirahara, in working with a genre that really privileges this sense of the kind of dark and shady, the things that are unspoken, but um, but haunt us um, and might not just haunt, and it's not a haunting that just comes from the past, but it's a haunting from the future. Um, I think that all of those things are able to come out for her because of her turn to the genre um, and this specific um, historical figure of this Kibe Hibakusha, who is now a part of a multiracial um, pluritariat um, uh, community that um, that these themes particularly come out. And, and, and so actually, uh, in terms of the, the Hibakusha, uh, so, you know, um, people like Grace Cho um, are, you know, thinking a lot about, um, you know, the legacies to, um, 
the Holocaust and World War II, but of course the fear, you know, the re- particularly the, re- the the fear that the future um, will be damaged as a result of you know radiation, um, that you know you will give birth to you know monster babies, um, you know, um, and, and this was something that happened to many uh, many women after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, and so you know, um, and so this idea of dread forwarding in her novel is tied to all of those things. It's, it's sort of nuclear fear. Um, again, um, turning the focus on melancholia and racial melancholia on the Trans-Pacific as opposed to the Transatlantic. Um, and so, you know, the this kind of nuclear fear of a deformed future, you know, that ties with um, her main protagonist's, um, you know, uh, you know, past of being, um, of being Japanese American in the United States and the kind of violent histories that he has to negotiate with. All of that stuff comes together in this this feeling that he's being haunted by the future. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's so interesting. Um, yeah. Um, so then, um, in terms of your final chapter, uh, you, um, you use Antigone, um, Sophocles Antigone, um, and you mentioned this earlier in our interview. Um, and what is it, I guess, uh, about the story that upholds your argument um, about the production of a Pacific Rim imaginary uh, between the U.S. and Japan, um, and then in other words, like you, um, what is it about the story of uh, former Peruvian President uh, Alberto Fujimori's rule um, through the story of Lori Berenson and also through Ann Patchett's novel Bel Canto um, that help facilitate the links to what you rename as the Pacific Arena? Yeah, thank you. Um, I also really enjoyed writing this chapter and all the research that went into it. Um, I spent a lot of time, uh, one summer, um, I spent three months um, uh, in Peru um, doing research in, um, particularly in um, what I thought was going to be a, a summer, you know, doing research and speaking with um, Korean petit bourgeois um, owners in um in Latin America, and then discovering that that is not my, um, that that is, that I was pulled, you know, into a different direction. Um, I was, um, you know, one of the first people that I interviewed when I got there, and, 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 you know, I didn't include any of that in the book. It just sort of comes up as a part of all the information that, um, kind of the background, but, you know, one of the things that the, um, that the person that I was interviewing, you know, I, I asked them, you know, what made you decide to come to Peru, um, to Lima, as opposed to the United States? And at that time, I was still really trying to understand, um, you know, uh, the legacies of, you know, um, the L.A. riots. You know, I wanted to understand if, you know, what happened in L.A., in, in the L.A. riots, if that ended up shaping um, the migration of, you know, um, small business people. And, um, you know, the first thing that the, um, that the woman said to me, she had changed her name. She was going by Carmen Kim was like, you know, um, living here, um, especially under Fujimori, it was like I was living in a Korea of my parents' childhood. And, um, and I asked why. And she said, you know, the reason that they came to Peru was not because of the you know, not because of anything that was happening in, you know, um, in Korea, uh, in the United States, but because um, Alberta Fujimori um, had 
reached out to the Korean population in both Korea and Japan. Um, you know, although he's a Peruvian, uh, you know, um, president, he played very much on the kind of cultural um, capital he had across Asia and how he could make Peru the new tiger. And tigers were the terms that were economic tiger. And the term economic tiger was one that was given to Korea and Japan to celebrate their quick rise out of, you know, um, of, you know, um, you know, economic destruction. And so, you know, he had promised that, you know, that Peru can be the new um, Latin American tiger. And, um, and one of the things that he did was that he, you know, um, reached out and, you know, tried to encourage not just big capital, um, you know, big companies like Samsung, um, and also, you know, Japanese companies um, to um, invest in Peru, but also petit bourgeois and small business people um, in both Korea and Japan to, um, to, um, uh, you know, to to settle and to um, and to um, you know build homes there, and so the 1990s is a kind of a weird time in Peru because it is a time of intense violence. Fujimori really upped the game. One of the things that um, he did to try to entice all of this foreign capital was to promise that. Um, state that terrorism, um, you know, was over. Between 1970 and until about 1995, um, Peru was involved in a massive civil war between the Maoist insurgents and the, um, and the military state. And Fujimori is credited for ending that period, uh, pretty much um, decapitating the Sendero Luminoso um, and Tupac Amaru um, by the mid-90s. But he does so only by becoming a cruel authoritarian dictator himself um, and instituting disappearances, um, uh, making himself pretty much you know, the judge in the judge and jury and ruler of all things. Um, it was a very uh, dangerous and um, scary period that at the same time was one in which um, a lot of immigrants from Japan and Korea were moving to Peru and settling. And so um, I, you know, I, I, I found myself, um, you know, as I've done a lot of things with a lot of my, um, you know, academic journey, you know, finding myself, you know, wanting to understand this figure, you know, this Fujimori figure, this person who has a pull across the Trans-Pacific, who can make Koreans and Japanese come to Peru, despite the fact that Peru is a Latin, a, 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 you know, a Latin American country. And, you know, and that's one of the things that, you know, Mrs. Kim, Carmen, um, speaks about as well, you know, before, you know, until Peru had a Japanese face, it never even occurred to them that it was a place that they wanted to go to. Um, and so, um, you know, so for me, I, you know, uh, wanted to do a few things. I think that, um, uh, and, and, and then of course, um, uh, Peru has one of the most unique histories in that it was also the only country in Latin America that not only also interned their Japanese Amer Japanese Peruvian populations, but then also sent them to the United States to be um, interned as well. And so um, there's a there's still a small population of Japanese Peruvians who became stateless when they were um, displaced from Peru to the United States um, and never got their citizenship to Peru back um, and remained stateless for, you know, several decades in the United States. You know, they're a part of this larger story about reparations, um, this larger story about memorializing and thinking about internment and the World War II era period and the violence that the U.S. military um, expansion across the Pacific has on the Japanese diaspora that that I think is the kind of work that Yamamoto in the first chapter is, you know, I'm trying to argue is trying to stave off, you know, to try to 
um, stop memorializing until all of the violence has been accounted for, you know, for example. I mean, so, um, so I, you know, so when I first learned about Fujimori, I was like, oh my God, there's just so much there and it exceeds my ability to frame it. You know, at first I was really interested in, you know, approving Korean immigrants in Los Angeles, you know, and whether they identify themselves as Latino or not. Um, and then the chapter became about much more the kind of, um, the, the broader implications of the U.S., uh, construction of the Pacific Rim as a way to connect the countries in Latin America, the United States, uh, North America, um, and Asia, um, and the way that Peru participated in that Pacific Rim construction, um, both clearly connected to U.S. military legacies and that kind of history, but also um, through its own auspices, um, and that's connected specifically to the violence of nation building um, in in Latin America, and so. So I, so I wanted to do all of that. And like I mentioned a little bit earlier in the discussion about the Trans-Pacific, it was really important for me to recuperate the idea of the Pacific Rim because it has been such, um, uh, one, a kind of an economic term and um, or, or seen purely through an economic lens and not through a kind of a cultural um, you know, cultural or a military position. And Chris Connery writes about this a lot, you know, um, the way that the, the idea of the Pacific Rim was meant to kind of soothe um, from this kind of um, fears and anxieties about, you know, American reputation as, um, as, 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 a, as a colonialist overseas. But, um, but, but, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to do was in, you know, expanding this notion of the arena was to recognize the kind of, you know, uh, cultural work um, that goes into constructing um, the Pacific Rim. And so Bel Canto and um, Antigona do very different work. Um, Bel Canto, um, Ann Patchett is, you know, very famous and beloved. And I think that a Bel Canto is very problematic um, in the ways that it represents um, what's happening in Peru um, as a part of a, you know, the country Peru is never named um, it um, in the novel. Um, it describes the, um, the Japanese embassy takeover um, in, uh, uh, by, uh, Tupac Amaru, but, you know, uh, never identifies it as such, you know, and it becomes a kind of a romantic backdrop. It's just another, um, another story, you know, on which, um, American lives can, you know, find some danger, um, or, you know, meaning globally. And, and she describes it as such when she talks about how she first, um, saw, um, the members of, um, the Maoist group Tupac Amaru, um, take over the Japanese embassy um, home that she saw it in her living room watching it. And it, it gave her a desire to talk about something and to write about something that she didn't know anything about. Um, and um, Antigona and Teresa Raleigh and Jose Watanabe's um, uh, um, collaboration is in some ways a direct opposite of that. I would argue that um, Bel Canto um, participates in the same economy that continues to erase um, and main, erase and disappears those who are disappeared um, and that Teresa Raleigh and um, and uh, and Jose Watanabe purposefully um, working together um, and I think that Jose Watanabe really saw himself as a kind of representative of a different kind of you know Japanese ethnic you know than um, than um, 
than um, Fujimori was, that their goal is to um, not just uh, make Antigone um, the the sister who refused to you know fight um, for her who refused to stop fighting for her brother. It was not just to glorify the Antigone figure, but also the Ismene figure, the sister, the bystander, um, the one who was um, too afraid to look away. And so um, I saw one work um, as really doing that kind of Pacific Rim work of of hiding. Um, the U.S. role, uh, the, the centrality of the U.S. in the Pacific relations, Pacific Rim relations, and the ways that it mediates the relationship between Peru, places like Peru, Korea, or Japan, um, in part through the historic um, power that it has amassed throughout the Pacific Rim since the World War II era, militar- militaristically, but also a part of our, um, as a part of the, the uh, up, as a part of the way that our global economic, um, you know. Uh, a global economism has um, developed since the World War II era, but um, uh, so so that's the kind of work that Belcanto was doing. It's a sort of anti-Antigone work, um, which you know contrasts to the kind of you know making visible that um, that both Raleigh and Watanabe are invested in. That yeah, that's really um, yeah okay uh, yeah. I was just taking some notes and I was like, oh, wow, um, that's, that's really so interesting. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, so this, this kind of leads me to, to your epilogue, um, and, um, you know, the epilogue on, you know, uh, watery graves, um, referencing the atomic bomb survivors of Hiroshima, uh, which includes scores of Korean hibakushas um, that you've already mentioned, um, whose bodies were washed up on shore and buried in unmarked graves um, by people living on Iki Island, um, an island that is situated between Japan and Korea. Um, you also reference this Hoa um, ferry disaster of 2014, which killed 304 uh, primarily high school youth, um, of whom nine bodies are yet to be found. Um, so, and I couldn't help but associate this concept of watery graves uh, with the history of transatlantic slavery and the Middle Passage, um, in which enslaved black bodies also pepper the floor of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, you don't make any direct connection, but uh, can you speak more to this analogy of watery graves in the production of post-colonial grief? Yeah. And, you know, um, the cover art comes from a Japanese feminist artist, um, Tomiyama Taeko, and it's, um, and it's called um, the bottom of, At the Bottom of the Ocean, and it features um, Korean comfort women who are imagined to have drowned. Um, but, um, but if you, um, but if you look closely at the image, you see that all the, although um, their bones, they still have expression and that they, um, that, that, that even though they're dead, um, that they haunt us um, and that their haunting is not quite dead either. Um, and that in their haunting, you know, they're not, it's not just that they're memories, but, you know, it's, it, ex- it suggests that the materiality, the materiality of their body still exists and that it, demands a, a reckoning. Um, and um, yeah, you know, so Watery Graves, that's what my uh, next project um, is really focused on. And I came to this concept uh, for this book because um, I felt like, and maybe this is the first book, I felt like I was not thinking unruly enough um, when I was doing this work. And, um, and by that, what I mean is that 
I have, you know, I'm treading on um, several disciplinary areas, not all of which work very well together, like Asian American studies and Asian studies, for example, or for or um, Pacific Islander studies or Latin American studies, um, none of which um, in particular, I would say that Asian American, Asian and you know, Pacific Islander um, scholarships and studies have a particularly vexed relationship. Um, but you know, as I suggest, you know, they're you know, depending on the depending on the, the field that you're looking at, um, you know, Asian studies and um, Latin American studies um, also have a lot of um, conflicts or um, you know, sites of incommensurability. And so, you know, um, as opposed to trying to work within this confines, you know, um, uh, Korean studies in particular is really, you know, um, tied to both the legacies of U.S. um, uh, rebuilding of education in Korea, but also this, you know, really a deep sense of, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, of, you know, um, national um, heritage that, um, you know, that um, holds, you know, Asian American studies or Korean American studies to be, you know, um, to be hostile or that it's suspicious of. So anyways, I, you know, um, I was thinking about the idea of watery graves because um, this whole ferry had just happened. Um, and um, I had also been keeping account sort of, you know, um, while I was finishing this first book, I, you know, I've been uh, sort of putting into a, a little box, you know, um, anytime I would hear notices about um, bodies that have washed up from the ocean, um, particularly the Pacific and the, and the kind of reactions that they've gotten to them, the, the kind of reactions that, um, that they bring for the people who find the bodies. And so I've been, you know, keeping a kind of a, you know, a small box, um, you know, of these ideas, you know, with the, with the thought that it would be a part of a future book project. And so, um, so I kind of end this book with an invitation to, for myself, um, to think more on, un- to think in a more unruly way, to, um, to, um, to try to open up questions as opposed to uh, kind of tie everything down, and um, and the recognition that this kind of inquiry into that which is submerged, that which is not. Um, that which um, is not allowed to be spoken of, that which um, we don't even know um, to be spoken about, um, that we don't even know our histories that need to be referenced. Um, it seemed to me a kind of um, an exciting way to um, end on, you know, watery graves in in that way, in that kind of intellectual way. Um, this whole fairy disaster, this whole ho, um, in particular was... Um, important for me to end. Uh, my editor had suggested that I can just end it with the um, um, Obama's visit to um, Hiroshima, the the you know the historic um, act of the first sitting president of the United States to visit Hiroshima and to visit with the Hibakushas. It would sort of bring the book um, perf- in a sort of a perfect um, you know perfect circle or perfect end. But you know, um, one of the things that was really fascinating to me about the Hibakusha is that. Um, the Korean Hibakusha uh, challenged and threatened that narrative. There was no way that their um, history could bring any kind of closure or healing because it implicates um, not just the 
U.S. military bombing as a kind of a, a terrible thing that happened between two parties that were in the war, you know, um, you know, equally, Japan and the United States. But it involves this, you know, uh, colonized body that um, who then become um, a part of the U.S. colony after World War II is over, and so that's the dilemma for the Hibakush, the Korean Hibakusha, that they that their claims cannot be recognized by the United States or by Japan, or and and has not and was not so until starting the 1970s, and most of the claims are still not recognized. Um, you know, uh, be, uh, due to all of the the kind of record keeping and, and you know and, and colonial machinations, as I write about, um, but that they um, but they just again challenge the the will of certain stories to be shut um, uh, shut down the possibility of leaving mourning and commemoration to the past. You know, uh, kept it open as something that's a an issue for now and um, you know possibly will impact the future generations. Um, and um, and so uh, you know thinking about the hibakusha and the ways in which they um, kept the history open, you know, refuses the will to um, to a kind of a closure um, was um, was something that I really wanted to focus on. And um, the Seoul ferry, the bodies that uh, we talk about with the Seoul ferry, um, you know, uh, you know where they lie, their watery graves are. You know, likely be, likely to be the same places where many of these Hibakushas, um, as they were fleeing uh, Japan in the immediate days after um, Hiroshima, um, their bones are likely to be intermingled with that, um, and they may also be intermingled with the, the bones and the histories of the comfort women who um, died also fleeing um, on ships, um, Japan and in Indonesia and other places of of Japanese um, of Japanese. Um, um, you know, empire during the World War II era. And so, so yeah, I wanted to start with the Korean Hibakusha um, and to narrate how they um, cannot participate in any sort of um, closure um, and then use it as an invitation to think about the other stories, the other watery graves, the, um, the other bodies um, whose, um, you know, stories who, you know, the histories and the stories, which, you know, I hope to be able to tell in my next book. What were the most difficult or unexpected aspects in the research and writing of your book? Oh, gosh. Um, what was the most difficult? You know, honestly, the hardest part was that I took it upon myself to basically learn about the entire world to write this one book. Um, and, you know, I found myself going into all of these deep rabbit holes, you know, um, you know, when I was, um, you know, going into the violence of, you know, um, you know, nation state building in Peru, you know, um, and thinking about the tactics of disappearances um, in Peru in the 1990s, you know, um, I found myself needing to compare that with the scholarship about, you know, what's happening with this, with disappearances in Argentina. Um, and then when I was thinking about the, um, about Peru, you know, um, aspiring to be an economic tiger, you know, um, I connect that to, you know, um, Kenya aspiring to be um, Africa's, um, you know, um, economic tiger or um, the ways in which Korea became one. And so I found it because 
it was exciting to be able to work on a project that um, really did truly allow me to be Trans-Pacific and Pacific Rim um, and connect to so many places. But I found it really difficult as a junior scholar writing my first book to know just how much it is that I'm supposed to know and how much I can leave behind. And so that just, just sort of in terms of research and learning about history and like not feeling so, and and now I know to not feel like you need to compare um, your historical object or context to so many other places. I think that was in part um, what was at first difficult for me. Um, And then I would say that the second um, thing that was hard is that I um, ended up publishing, I ended up working primarily on um, almost all on English language texts, even, you know, um, you know, uh, the parts of um, Watanabe's, uh, uh, Raleigh and Watanabe's texts that I, um, that I worked with very closely were translated, but I was also working with a lot of primary material, um, you know, written in Spanish and in Korean. And, um, and that was very difficult. You know, I, um, had to make sure that my understanding or my translation was correct and to encounter my limitations um, uh, on, on that level, on a language level, was very hard. And it also made me wish that I also spoke Japanese. Um, and um, I, I, I think that in particular. And so, and, and this is, and but I'm also understanding that this is a kind of a deeper existential and um, scholarly issue that um, many immigrants and diasporic, you know, scholars have, you know, we are um, to translate is to betray, you know, um, it's, um, and so I, you know, I think that the, the, the work of doing diasporic work while living not where you do your study, like, you know, for my next work, you know, I'm looking primarily at Korea, you know, doing this work and not living there um, and having the language limitations. That was really the toughest. Mm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I guess uh, just kind of a a part of the follow-up to that question, um, the length of your book is actually pretty short. Um, and I'm just wondering if that's like a publisher thing or, um, you know, if you felt like you had to reduce a lot of the material that you already had. Um, yeah, just uh, curious. Yeah, no, absolutely. Actually, it was much thicker. And then I ended up putting almost all of it into the footnotes. Um, and I did that for and actually the comments that I've gotten is that it's so interesting because it's like. I have two lives, like my, the footnotes are quite lively and, um, and I, I took a lot of it out of the body and I don't, you know, I think in part, it's just the way that I write. I'd like to write very lean. Um, and I want to, um, try to streamline as much of it as possible. Um, and a lot of the, um, a lot of the side conversations or these kind of disciplinary, you know, discussions, um, you know, about what's happening in Asian American studies or Asian studies or how, um, somebody in Mexico might disagree about the use of the term, you know, mestizaje, you know, versus in Argentina. A lot of that stuff was in the text. And then I decided to pull it out and put it in the footnote to make it more coherent. Um, it was not anybody else's decision, but mine, um, I would say. Um, and, and that was mainly it. You know, I, I wanted to 
yeah, I think I wanted to maintain a certain level of narrative coherency and make the um, the arguments as clear as possible. Um, and some of the um, kind of going back to your question about what was difficult, you know, um, I you know, found myself, you know, having, you know, pages of, um, you know, debates between an anthropologist, you know, um, on, on, you know, on something. And it just didn't really seem like, it seemed like it was important, but I didn't necessarily need it to have it in the body of the, on, on the, in the body of the chapter. And, and yet it was important enough that I felt like it needed to exist somewhere. And so I put it in the footnote. Okay, great. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, yeah, I was curious about that because um, your book is so rich and I was wondering like, oh, did she have a lot more and then she cut it down um, or, you know, uh, yeah. So, and and I did notice, um, you know, yes, your, your, um, your end notes are quite um, substantive. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's very nice also for other scholars as they're reading through your work. Um and so, yeah, so then, um, you know, my final question, which you've already alluded to is, you know, what, what is your sort of future project that you're working on? You mentioned Watery Graves. Um, would you like to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So it's changed a lot. Um, I, you know, like I said, you know, while I was finishing this book, um, kind of like I felt when I was writing my dissertation, by the end of this book, I just wanted to burn it, you know. Um, and um, I, um, I also wanted to burn my dissertation. Um, maybe that's a healthy impulse. But I, um, you know, started to, um, you know, I, I wrote this book because I wanted to understand the ways in which the Japanese and Korean diasporas in the U.S. narrated, you know, their history of their passive war um, in the U.S. And this book made me want to understand more the ways in which diaspora can also impact homeland politics, um, in particular how the Korean diaspora can um, impact um, the can, can shape and impact um, verboten histories of the Korean War, World War II, um, as well as ongoing, um, you know, military developments, um, you know, happening in the Korean Peninsula. Um, and so, um, you know, so in line with that, um, you know, so, so, so there's that one um, part of it. Um, and then I've also been um, really fascinated um, with, um, you know, various, and, I, and then I've just been, you know, uh, keeping count uh, you know, uh, keeping um, a notebook of, you know, these various mentions of, you know, bones that wash up um, or violence that happens, you know, in the ocean by, you know, near the Korean Peninsula. And so, um, you know, one is, um, you know, one of the ones that really, uh, you know, caught my um, imagination is um, the ghost ships, um, you know, um, these um, ghost ships that have washed up on the Japanese shore, likely, um, you know, of, of North Koreans who died um, while fishing or trying to flee? Um, they're the most recent um, versions, but um, also in um, in Guam, you know, uh, recently as the the U.S. military base was trying to expand some of its um, territory, one of the things that they did was to you know dig up um, you know former um, you know grave sites that are you know significant to the Chamorro um, population. Um, and then, um, you know, short stories and films, um, you know, happening in Korea and around the Pacific that, you know, are really focused on these idea of, you know, watery graves. And so, you know, starting from these sort of news accounts, um, I've, you know, also started to read um, Kathy Jetniel Kijiner's um, a selection of poems, um, Yep, um, um, yep Jotek. Um, she's um, um, she's Marshallese scholar. 
to um, Tomiyama Taeko's, um, you know, uh, series featuring um, um, many, she's a, a Japanese feminist painter and many of her work um, take place along, um, you know, in the ocean um, and um, the, the, uh, the comfort women um, being drowned, but not dead, um, you know, is, is one of her series. So, um, you know, taking um, her work, um, taking um, uh, the Korean um a film called Heimu, um, which is a, a recent um, a, a movie that focuses on um, the, the kind of trauma um, and, um, um, and, you know, and violence, um, you know, in, around the Korean oceans in particular. And so, so I've just been collecting all of these, you know, um, and, and thinking about what it is that I'm going to do with them. And, um, and so, so tentatively it's called, um, you know, the unruly dead, um, and it focuses on, you know, the ocean as both metaphor, but also as a material history for the kind of war violence, capitalist violence, um, uh, um, indigenous histories that have gotten erased, um, or um, that have gotten erased, and um, I'm specifically interested in exploring it through a feminist, um, a trans-Pacific feminist um, framework. Um, I think that um, you know feminism um, and feminist framework have you know um, always been attuned to that which is silenced or um, you know seen as dark or submerged, and um, and so I. Um, so I'm deploying a trans-Pacific, you know, feminist uh, method to understanding these um, watery graves um, and these unruly dead and what it is that they do to our politics, our imagination, and the ways that we might be able to reconceptualize the relations across the trans-Pacific. Great. Wow. Um, well, I can't, I can't wait to, to, you know, see that in production at some point. Um, so Jenna, thank you so much for speaking with us about your book, Postcolonial Grief, The Afterlives of the Pacific Wars in the Americas, published in 2019 by Duke University Press. Um, this was a very rich conversation. I really enjoyed it, um, and I really appreciate your taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Laura. It was such a pleasure to talk with you, too. Thank you for your wonderful questions. Thank you. Thank you.